All right. Man, it is good to see everybody this morning. My name is Lee, and I'm one of the pastors here at FBC, and we are so excited that you are here. Uh, we are going to continue in 1 Peter, this life in exile. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. And if we remember what Peter's writing to are these believers that are in exile, right? They were in Jerusalem. They had like this big, huge group of Christians, and then Jesus' death comes, and then they're scattered everywhere. And so they're looking for encouragement. They're looking for hope. And Peter's writing to them to give it to them. Now, before we get into that, I, I was trying to think of a, a great story to kind of help, you know, illustrate what we're going to be looking for today. And so... Most of you know that I have two kids. I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. My five-year-old daughter, named Harper, um, she's, I won't say crazy, but yeah. like, like bull in a china shop, kind of, that's kind of her deal. Um, and she goes 100 miles an hour, it's all, she's, she's Miss Independent, she wants to do everything. And I believe that her favorite phrase is, I can do it by myself with everything, if it's brushing teeth, if it's getting dressed, if it's cutting up food, everything, she says, I can do it by myself. And so, I, sadly to say, she probably got this from me as opposed to my wife. And so, trying to think of a story, uh, to connect to this, I asked my wife about a story that was in my head, and I said, is this real or did I just make it up? And once she told me it was real, I said, all right, that's what we're going with. So my son, Brendan, he's seven years old. When he was born, or when, before he was born, Lindsay's pregnant with him. And as, as the husband, as the dad, you know for your first child, like, you really feel helpless. Like, you, right, you're not doing anything. You're not carrying around a child for 40 weeks. You're basically just like, like your wife goes to bed earlier, right? That's really, and so you're like, okay, I'm going to catch up on movies or, you know, read a book. I don't really know what to do with my time because I don't know what's happening. And so I began to think, you know, I... What can I do? How can I be helpful to my wife during this time? You know, I'm excited about our son coming, but honestly, up until he's born, like, I, nothing's really changing for me. And so I said, okay, I said, I can at least get his room ready. I can hang things on the wall. Right? If I need to paint, I can do that. And then I said, you know what? I'll, we'll get the crib, and I'll put the crib together by myself. Yes. That's, uh, yeah, yeah. You, guys, you guys know where this is going. And so... I'm putting the crib together. Now, it's kind of a precursor to this. At this point, we're living in Houston, Texas. It's the middle of June. So if you know anything about that, it is stupid hot uh, in June in Houston, Texas. Pretty much all the time in Houston, Texas, but especially in June. So as I'm putting this crib together, still just kind of sweating like crazy and just kind of aggravated, but I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to deal with it because this is for my wife and for our kid. And so Lindsay, being the amazing woman that she is, she says, do you need any help with this? And I said, no, I, I got this. Not as in like, no, you can't, you don't know what you're doing, but as in like, you know, you're seven months pregnant, go sit on the couch, watch TV, this will be kind of my thing. And so I finished putting it together and I take a step back to admire it and I'm about to call her in and I realize I connected things backwards. <laughs> and so it was not going to be usable the way that it was and so... I had to take everything apart. I had to undo everything I had just spent that time doing. Um, we will not discuss some of the colorful language I probably used at that point, just because, again, it was the heat. That's what I'm blaming it on, was the heat. <laughs> and so then after that point, I said, Lindsay, sweetie, um, can you help me? 
Can you, I was like, I'll do all the lifting, but if you can just kind of read the instructions, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, because that is something that men are great at is reading instructions. Um, so she helped me, and you'll never guess what happened. It worked perfectly, right? Like from the first time, it worked perfectly. Yeah. One of the things that we need to understand is that we are not meant to be alone. We're not meant to go through things alone. We are better together, and that is especially true as believers in Christ living in exile. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And just to kind of give you a recap as we've been going through 1 Peter, again, the believers have been spread out everywhere. They're in exile. They're social outcasts. There's really not a lot that they can do. There's a possibility of them being killed at some point. And so they're looking for some type of encouragement. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a blue Bible on the bottom of the chair in front of you. It looks like this. It's on page 828. If you're looking for it, if you want to get connected that way. So we're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Now if we look in verse 1, we see that word, therefore. Anytime we see that, we need to kind of look back a little bit and see exactly what is being connected. So in this part, when Peter says, therefore, he's referring to verses 22 through 25 in chapter 1. Pastor Matt spoke on that last week, about loving one another deeply from a sincere, from a pure heart, uh, about being born again, and about... The, the word that was preached to them. So in light of these things, what does a community of believers look like, a Christian community that's centered around Jesus? What should this look like? So the first thing Peter does in verse 1, he says, therefore, rid yourselves. The Greek for rid yourselves would mean like taking off muddy clothes, right? Like that's what it's talking about. And this is something that, that it's the idea that you're constantly doing it. Right? Like you're continually thinking about what are the things in my life that are not in line with the gospel and how do I need to get rid of those? So Peter lists, he lists these things, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Now one of the things we need to think about when we're reading scripture, there's always a reason why things are written the way they are. Why these specific sins? Why didn't he include murder? Right? Why didn't he include uh, things like uh, infanticide, people that were killing their children? Why are these things listed as Peter's writing to these believers in exile? Why are these specific sins talked about? So the first one we want to look at is malice. Malice is just intentionally being wicked or evil to people, right? That's the Greek definition for that is the intention or desire to do evil. Deceit, speaking or acting with ulterior motives, or anything less than speaking the full and honest truth from the heart. So Peter's saying get rid of that. Hypocrisy. Now we need to understand there's a difference 
and how the Bible defines hypocrisy and how in our world today hypocrisy is defined. The way the Bible defines it is intentional inconsistency between what you believe and what you practice. Now, one of the things that we hear a lot from non-believers who don't like the idea, idea of church is like the church is full of hypocrites. That's like saying the doctor's office is full of sick people. Yeah, that's true. We're, we're not perfect. That's this idea, right? Like people who use that as an excuse are saying, you know what, you're supposed to be perfect from what you're telling me and you're not perfect, so I'm done going to church. When in reality, here's the way we look at that. Everybody, even people who aren't Christians, have a standard that they feel that people should live by. Even if it's not Christ-related, there's still the standard, this is how people should live, this is how people should act. Nobody follows their own standard 100% of the time. So in that reality, everyone, believers and non-believers, are hypocrites. But what Peter's talking about this is intentionally living that way, saying one thing in front of people and then purposely acting another way. The next kind of sin or vice that he gives us is envy. Envy is being jealous that somebody has something that you think you deserve. It's not just, oh, hey, that's cool, but it's like they have something and you think you have a right to that thing, and so you're upset with them about that process. And we kind of tend to think of jealousy and envy as not really that big of a deal, but in reality, that's what killed Jesus. Think about this. The, the religious leaders saw the power in the following that Jesus was gaining, and they didn't like that because they had been in power. They had been in control. They felt they deserved that. So that leads to the death of Jesus. So next time you think that jealousy is not that big a deal, let's, let's, let's remember that. And then he finishes up with slander, right? Criticizing others in someone else's presence. A lot of times, slander is just the outworking of envy that's within our hearts, right? We, we're envious. We think people have something that we deserve, and so we're going to speak negatively about them. So now the question again becomes, why does Peter write these things? Why does he list these specific things? And the reason that he lists them is because they destroy community, they destroy community. Because if you think about all these things that are listed, the biggest thing they do is they erode any sense of trust. And community cannot exist without trust. That has to be one of the first things. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to really dig into life with somebody that I don't think I can trust. If I know someone is purposely deceiving me or is purposely saying one thing and living another way, I'm not going to share my struggles with that person. I'm probably not going to share my joys with that person either. So it disrupts community. And Peter's understanding as believers in exile, in order for them to thrive, to still not just be like, okay, we're barely making it, but to thrive in exile, they have to have Christian community. They have to have that. And so that's why he lists these sins or these vices the way that he does, because he knows if they don't have that, things are going to fall apart. So that's the first thing he lists to them, because they need to be thriving. So there has to be that sense of trust. So any of these things that erode trust, we need to get rid of. And so in order to rid ourselves of those, we kind of relate to this idea of if you ever tried quitting something, if you ever tried quitting smoking or, you know, try and eat healthy, whatever you're giving up, if you don't replace it with something else, that thing's going to come back. That negative, that's the research shows that, that negative thing that you were trying to give up is going to come back unless you replace it with something else. And normally in Scripture, after there's a list of vices like this, whoever's writing gives um, 
kind of an opposite set of virtues to follow. But Peter doesn't do that here. He doesn't do that here. Let's look at what he does. Let's look in verses 2 and 3. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Instead of a list of virtues, what Peter does is he gives them a call to dependence on God. They're in exile. He's not saying, listen, here's a couple of more things to do. It's like, listen, you need to be in community. Your dependence needs to be fully on God or, it's not, or you're not, you may not make it. Things are going to be rough for you. In order for you to thrive, it's got to be on God. When it talks about this pure spiritual milk, it's referring again to verse 25 where it says the word that was preached to you. So he's saying not to neglect that. Listen, the, the people that are here, are the people in exile that he's writing to are not new believers, right? They've been Christians. But what Peter's reminding them is once you become a Christian, you don't just put the word of God aside and be like, okay, now I'm going to try my best and I'm going to work my hardest. You continue to go back to God's word because that is what nourishes from the beginning and that is what sustains, especially through these rough times. And that's the only way that our spiritual growth is going to happen. Right? This idea of spiritual growth, it's not like this mystical kind of thing. Like God's clear, like it's rational. If you want to grow in your faith, you need to spend time in God's word. Right? Like that's, that's an easy connection to make from this. So a lot of times we have this idea, I, I wish God would speak to me. It's like, okay, he's done that. Are you, are you reading? Are you listening to what he has said? If you are, then you're going to continue to grow, even if it's baby steps, right? It's, it's about progress over perfection. So Peter's reminding them about that. And so what happened? If they continue to crave the word of God, if they continue to crave the presence of God, where does that lead them to? Let's look in verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone. So that craving the word leads them to Jesus. The living stone, the Jewish readers at this time would have known that that meant the resurrected Messiah. So they knew that that was talking about Jesus. So what he's doing is he's connecting. If you crave the word of God, if you follow after it, it's going to get you to Jesus. And what he does here kind of subtly, the next part of verse 4, he's referring to Jesus. He says, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. Here Peter is giving them encouragement because also in exile, they have been rejected by humans. But as believers, they are chosen by God, and they're precious to him. What he's telling them is, listen, what's true of Jesus is also true of you. The same thing with us living in exile even here. We don't have it as bad as they did in America in 2019. But, th but there are things we lose. We can lose out on jobs. We can lose out on promotions. We can lose out on friendships. Those are, those are things that we sometimes have to give up for Christ. So it's just a reminder that even if we are rejected by those around us, if your faith is in Jesus, you are chosen by God. And that's just, that's just such a comfort that it would bring them. So as, as we come to Jesus, or as they come to Jesus, what happens? Let's look at verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You also like living stones. Again, just this idea that what is true of Christ is also true of us. He has been resurrected, and now he has resurrected us from the old way of living to the new way of living. 
through his death and resurrection. His resurrected life has become our resurrected life. And through that, we are being built into a spiritual house. Now, here's where we need to kind of sit for a minute and think about this. In the Old Testament, the temple, the Jewish temple, was where God dwelt. God's spirit, God's presence was there. And so through this time, they have now seen, all these believers, they have seen their temples ransacked, destroyed, looted. And so there's kind of this idea, so, so does God's presence dwell among us anymore? And Peter's reminding them, it's, it's not the, the temple. Now that Jesus has come, you are like him, meaning that God's spirit dwells within you if your faith is in Christ. God's spirit dwells within you. That is an amazing thing. To know that now what was the physical church has now become the non-physical church. What's so comforting about that is that cannot be ransacked, it cannot be destroyed, it cannot be looted. It is for eternity because there are people all around the world whose faith is in Jesus. So the church will continue to move forward. There is no getting rid of it as the idea was for the Old Testament. And to that extent... I think you guys are aware of this, but just to make sure, FBC does not have the only Christians in our area, right? We're aware of that, right? When we talk about the church, we mean capital C, the big church, meaning everyone, people that attend other churches in our area that have placed their faith in Christ are part of God's church, are part of God's church. So I know sometimes we hear these things of people speaking negatively about other churches, in certain places, guys, we're on the same team. When other churches are excelling, if other churches are growing more than us, have more baptisms, more salvations, we should celebrate that. That should be celebrated. If God's kingdom is expanding, then we should be behind that 100%. It's not about our kingdom expanding. It's about God's kingdom expanding. So even if we never gained another person for the next 20 years, but all the other churches in the Bay Area are exploding for God's kingdom. That's a wonderful thing. And all of that is part of God's church and part of what he is doing. There should be this, this idea of competition between churches does not make any sense and is not biblical in any way, shape, or form. And what's important that we see this is when Peter's writing to the people and saying you're being built into a spiritual house, he's writing to everyone. This idea of, of individual stones all over the place, there's, there's nothing to that here. I know sometimes there are people that don't come to church and their reasoning is, I can do church at home by myself. No, you can't. You, can't, you cannot do, the way that church is described in scripture, you cannot do that by yourself. It's not possible. It's never encouraged. So this idea that, oh, I don't have to come to church on Sunday. I can do it by myself at home. You cannot. There's nothing in Scripture that gives you, gives you that idea because the presence of God interacts with us differently as a community than it does individually. The presence of God interacts with us differently when we gather together. And if we think about that, like, like that makes sense. The reason we struggle with this is because we live in America in 2019 and our culture is all about individuality. We don't have this sense of, of family and, and togetherness. We have this kind of like, I'm going to go do my thing, you go do your thing. But what God is calling us together because he responds differently when we are together than when we're by ourselves. 
And again, just to give you an example, when you're reading the Bible, if you read the Bible by yourself, yes, you will get something out of it because God's word always comes back. But how much more if you and four or five other people are reading God's word together and sharing the insight and using the gifts that each of you have? How greater is your knowledge? How richer is your understanding of what God has said when you're doing that with other people? The same thing happens in prayer. The same thing happens in worship. There's just a different way that God reacts when we're together as people. That implies that one, Sunday is a great time for us together. This is a wonderful time we're in God's house together, being in community together. This is not enough. This is not enough. And so we have this idea that, you know, for, I think for some of us, the reality is, I'm going to go to church unless something else comes up. Or that's, how, that's how kind of a lot of us go through. I'm going to go to church unless something else comes up. And Scripture is saying that we need to be in Christian community, and it starts here, right? It starts here on Sunday morning. And this is just from, from me to you guys, just straight up, okay? If you are in town, there's no reason for you to miss church on a Sunday unless you're sick. And the reason, the reason I say that, it's not just so we can, like, get numbers up, right? We need each other. You need to be here with us, and we need you to be here with us, right? It's, this is not a one-sided thing. If you're not coming and contributing to what's happening on Sunday morning, then we're missing out on the gifts that you have, on the things that God has called you to. We're missing out on that as much as you are. And if you think about, if you're familiar with when, um, in the New Testament, when Jesus rose from the dead and went to meet everybody, but Thomas wasn't there. And they're telling Thomas about, man, Jesus came. And he's like, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Unless I can put my fingers through the holes in his hands, and put my fingers through his side, I don't believe it. So the moral of that story is, when Thomas didn't come to church, Jesus showed up. So you need to come to church. <laughs> Jesus might show up. He's going to do something. Because again, the presence of God interacts with us differently when we're together. That is a for sure thing. And the biggest thing we see is that in some way, shape, or form, Jesus shows up to all of us. To all of us in some way. I don't, I don't know exactly in detail how Christ has shown up to each one of you, but he has in one way or another. And how we respond to that impacts our eternity. Not just our eternity, but even this time we have on earth. But how we respond to Christ determines our eternity. Let's look in verses 6 through 8. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. In this, Peter's quoting some scripture from the Old Testament. Because, he, again, at this time, they didn't have the entire Bible. Their scripture was the Old Testament. So that's what Peter's connecting to. But if you notice, in each one of these verses, it refers to a stone. A stone in Zion. This stone is precious. A stone that causes people to stumble. And the way that Peter uses it earlier in the passage when he talks about Jesus being the living stone, he's saying all these things are fulfilled in Christ. All these things you read about in the Old Testament have now been fulfilled in Jesus, which means he 
is the precious and chosen cornerstone. What it also means, look at verse 6. Man, I love verse 6. I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Never. Now think about this. If you're one of these believers who has been spread out in areas you're not used to that aren't your home, and you're just, you probably have a lot of anxiety, you probably have a lot of things you're worried about going on all the time, and Peter's reminding them, if your trust is in Jesus, you'll never, ever be put to shame. The beautiful thing about that is what it's saying is your circumstances do not dictate your relationship with God. If you are sick, if things are falling apart at home, if your faith is in Christ, then you will never be put to shame. God will always have your back in that situation. It doesn't mean things are easy. Listen, the world can be a messed up place sometimes. But what God is saying is that your circumstances in this world do not determine his faithfulness or his relationship with you. So that would be such a comfort to be able to understand that. And it should be a comfort to us today. Listen, I don't know if you guys are aware, but life's not perfect. Anybody, you guys, everybody gets that, right? I think everybody's familiar with that. So then what do we have to look to in those moments? Where do we get hope from? Where do we get hope from? It says we put our hope in Christ, we'll never be put to shame. And it also refers to Jesus here as the cornerstone because he is the foundation of the church. The church cannot be built on something other than Christ. But we see in verse 7, not everybody decides to go this way. Right? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Here's, here's the, the Greek, or the little translation of that says, like builders who are looking, who are checking out stones for the foundation, and they've looked at it and said, you know what, this is not suitable for building. So they toss it aside. So what people are doing here is we look at Jesus. If we reject Christ, we're looking at Jesus and saying, you know what, you're not suitable for me to build my life on. And so as a result of that, those same people stumble and fall. Because when we come to Jesus, there's always a decision. You either reject him or you follow him completely. That's it. That's your only two choices. There's no... There's no standing on the sidelines and kind of waiting to see how things play out. You either accept Christ and you follow him or you reject him. And here's something that we need to understand. Every person that has ever lived is building their house on some foundation. Building your house, building your life, your future. You're building that on some foundation. What is your foundation? What is your cornerstone? If it's not Jesus, what are you trusting in to deliver you? Is it money? Is it a relationship? Is it your family? Is it work? Is it your social status? What are you looking to? What are you basing your life on that says, you know what, if I get this, if everything else comes around this one thing, life is going to work. What is that thing? Because all of those things, right, the money, the cars, the relationships, the status, every single one of those can be gone just like that. Listen, marriages crumble. We lose jobs. We can't control that. Money goes away. Or we have to spend it on something we didn't plan on spending it on, and now it's gone. You could lose your job. Your social status can be impacted. Every single one of those things can be taken from you in an instant. Why on earth would you use that as a cornerstone to build your life on? 
Why would we do that? There is one thing. We are offered Christ as the one thing that never goes away, the one thing that will always be there for us. And yet we consistently say, uh, you know what, I, I get that, but I, I, there's really something else I want to try other than Jesus. And here's what happens. So first you, you'll have somebody, you'll say, you know what, once I get married, if I could just get married, life's going to be good. Then you get married and what happens? You realize your spouse is human, right? <laughs> not only are they not perfect, you're not that perfect either. So they say, okay, so, so that person, so my spouse is flawed, but I still love him. All right, let's see. So now, but if I, if I move up in my career, if I get more money, then surely that's going to be the one thing that I can base my life on. How many stories have you heard about people who run Fortune 500 companies making three to $500 million a year and then somehow raid their company for $200 million more dollars? So what that again shows us is that money is not the end all either. Everything that you use that's not Jesus is gonna crumble at some point. It might sustain you for a little bit, but believe me, it's gonna crumble. So you have to continually replace that foundation if it's not Jesus. Now if it is Jesus, that foundation is set and you're good. And again, does not mean life is easy, but it means your foundation is solid and your hope is in Christ. So the first thing I want to do right now, I want to, if you have placed your faith in Christ, if you are one of those people this morning, you need to be in Christian community. The Bible does not list that as optional. And that means more than Sunday morning for an hour. And they kind of give you an idea of that, right? Let's say, I think the statistics are even, the average churchgoer attends church twice a month. So let's say you're on the the higher side of that and you come to church three times a month for one hour each Sunday, okay? Think about the number of hours that that's going to be, right? That would be 36 Sundays out of a year. You tracking with me? Three times a month, 12 months, 36 Sundays out of a year. For one hour, that's 36 hours. So you're telling me out of 365 days in a year that 36 hours is going to be enough for us to get through this life as Christians? That doesn't make any sense. Right? If you're, if you're training your child to do something, are you only going to make them work 36 hours out of the year? If you're, an, if, you, if you're a boss, are you going to tell your employees, listen, you guys only have to show up 36 hours out of the year and everything's fine? <laughs> that doesn't make sense, but yet we apply that to our faith. That makes no sense. We would, we would never do that with anything else in our life but we do it with Jesus. We do that with Jesus. You need to be in Christian community. Now, please understand this. That does not mean you don't need to have non-Christian friends. That's not what I'm saying at all. Okay? If you exist in the world in 2019, you have non-Christian friends, right? Or at least people you work with. Now, and later on in chapter two, uh, when, when Pastor Matt preaches on the rest of it, it'll get into the idea of how believers relate to non-believers, but this is talking about Christians needing to be in Christian community. And again, this idea, not just a group of people that hang out, but whose lives are centered on Christ. This idea that we can do this alone, again, nowhere in Scripture doesn't make any sense. In the New Testament alone, there are 94 verses that have the words one another. 
meaning like love one another, serve one another, bear with one another. 94 verses. You cannot be a Christian by yourself and also fulfill the gospel. You can't do that. That's not an option. It was never meant to be. The reason being is that God knows as believers in exile, which we are, the only way we thrive is if we are a part of a Christ-centered community. And that's, that's why we have Connect as one of our four core commitments. We're called to be connected with each other because life is hard. That's a reality, okay? We can feel sorry for ourselves all we want, but that's a reality. And how much greater is that when we can share that load with other people that makes that load so much easier to bear? You're not meant to carry that load by yourself. So the question we have to ask is, if that's one of our things here at FBC, how do we do that? The easiest way is simply through small groups, right? The easiest way is simply through small groups. If you're not in a group right now, then you need to take your connection card that Darren spoke so wonderfully about earlier today. You need to check the box that says join a small group. And we will get in touch with you this week to make sure you get connected to a small group. You are not intended to go through this life alone. Now, one of the questions that we ask people who aren't a small group, why? You know, what's not like, hey, weren't you a small group? But like, what's, what's the reason? If, we, if we're called to be in a small group, we're called to be in a group with other Christians, why would you not do that? And the, the biggest response is, because I'm too busy. If you're too busy to be in Christian community, then guess what? You are too busy, period. Period. Now, I know some of you will say, but, but, but Lee, you don't know what my life is like. I, you're right. I don't. But I do know what the Word of God says about this. So then, again, what's your foundation? Is your foundation on making sure, listen, I got to work 20 hours a day. I got to make sure I give my kids to every single thing in the world. It's too busy. It's, I've got too many other things to be meeting with other Christians and going through life with them. Just some practical advice in that arena. If you, if you literally are so busy you cannot meet with anybody, then you need to stop doing something. You need to cut something out of your life. So if you're busy every night, make a list of how you prioritize those things. What's number one, what's number two, what's number three, whatever's at the bottom of that list, cut it off. Because we cannot say, yes, we're Christians trying to follow God's word, and at the same time say, I'm too busy to meet with other Christians who are trying to encourage me in following God's word. That doesn't make sense. If, even if it's not in a small group here, find a way to get involved in Christian community somewhere. You cannot thrive without this. And it's the same idea from my story about building the crib at the beginning. We are better together. Not only do you need to be in a small group for yourself or in some type of group for yourself, but it's also for the rest of the people in that group. Again, if you're not meeting with other people, then you are neglecting the gifts that God has given you to share with others to help them in their growth in their faith. Get in a group. Find a way to meet with people. We are better together, and that's what Christ has called us to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much. 
I thank you so much for what you've called us to. God, you've called us for such a greater thing than just going through the motions here in this life. God, you've called us to so much more. You've called us to, to you, to follow you, God. And knowing that that would not be the easiest thing, you have also called us to do that with others. God, thank you for that, Lord. God, thank you for our brothers and sisters here this morning as we come just to worship you. God, to think about how you have caused to this, but have also given us the things that will make that successful. God, we need to be craving your word. We need to be in Christian community. God, we need to be supporting each other. We need to be encouraging, encouraging each other. We cannot thrive in this life as believers without that. God, I pray for those that have continued to find reasons to not be in community. God, I pray that you will get rid of those reasons. Lord, I pray that you will show them, God, that it's honestly nothing more than excuses. If we are committed to following your word as believers, you have called us to be in Christian community. God, help us to do that, Lord. Lead us to the people that you'd have us be around that we can share life with. It's your son's name I pray. Amen.